Well, it is good to be back with you. It's always a pleasure to be here because obviously, as was mentioned, you all know me very well, probably more than a lot of the visiting preachers you have come in here, but it's always very good to be back with you all. You all mean an awful lot to me. You mean an awful lot to my family. And I just appreciate, again, the invitation to be in your presence. And again, we, I am now the full-time evangelist at East End. And that, so you know, has been going very well. And me and my family do appreciate your ongoing prayers for that work and that effort there as well. Well, the birth of a child is easily one of life's most amazing events. Just the idea that life is being fostered and and nurtured and protected inside of the womb and then all of a sudden we're introducing life into the world for the first time where we can see it grow and mature and develop and just that whole concept is just astonishing. And whether or not you've personally had children or not, we have all been a part of the birth experience because all of us have been born. But even more amazing than the physical birth is a birth that, sadly, maybe not all of us in this room have taken a part in, and that is spiritual birth, a birth that does more than bring physical life, but a birth that brings spiritual life, eternal life. And that may sound like an odd concept to you, a spiritual birth. But if it's something that you're not familiar with, it's okay. We're going to talk about that this afternoon. In fact, there was a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who was unfamiliar with that term, rebirth or a spiritual birth. But as Jesus explained to him, we will go on and discuss that this afternoon. If you would go on and open up your Bibles to the book of John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we'll start by reading in verse 1. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so this man named Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus And he comes to Jesus with already a glimmer of faith. Now, if you remember in this point in John, Jesus had come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And he entered into the temple and he cleansed the temple authoritatively by by driving out the money changers, by driving out the merchants. And he began to teach and to instruct. And the people who heard his teachings were astonished by what they heard. It's possible that Nicodemus witnessed that firsthand. And if he didn't witness it firsthand, he was probably very familiar with the fact that that event just took place. But we do know for a fact that Nicodemus saw the signs of Jesus. Because in verse 2 of chapter 3, it says that he saw the signs and he recognized that they were from God. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus recognizing that there is something very unique and very different about Jesus. And so he comes to find out more from Jesus. He wanted to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation in which he and Jesus could involve themselves in deep spiritual discussion. And what's amazing about all of this is the fact that this man who had a glimmer of faith, this man who wanted to know more from Jesus, was a Pharisee. And if you remember, Pharisees were characterized by their knowledge of the Mosaic Law. 
and, and they prided themselves in how much they knew. They were zealous students of the law. But understand that they were more than just knowledgeable. In fact, they strictly adhered to the things that they learned. But understand that they did this to such an extent that they completely missed the point. And their religion was completely misguided. In fact, that's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 famously went on that spree where he called out the scribes and the Pharisees and referred to them as hypocrites over and over and over again. Well, understand that Nicodemus was a part of that group of people. He was one of those Pharisees. But we also learn in verse 2 that he was a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was one of the members of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling body of the Jews during that period of time. And what we need to understand about that was he was well-connected. He was prominent. He was extremely influential. And he decided, this influential man, decided to come to Jesus by night. Now, many people have speculated why he came to Jesus by night. And I'll just tell you right now, I can't tell you for certain exactly why. But I will tell you that there are two main theories as to why he came by night. I'll present them to you, and you just decide which one you want to believe. Because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. But the first theory is he came by night because he didn't want to be seen as someone coming to Jesus. Because here's, he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Both of those groups of people didn't think too highly of Jesus. And so he wanted to be hidden by the, by the veil of night so that no one would be able to point to him and say, why are you going to talk to Jesus? So that's one possibility. The second possibility is simply because he knew that going to Jesus at night was going to be the best opportunity to have that deep spiritual conversation that he wanted to have. Nicodemus was a busy man. He was a teacher of the law. He was a student of the law. Surely he had other responsibilities being a member of the Sanhedrin. And he also knew that Jesus was busy teaching and doing the things that he was doing in his ministry. So he figured, hey, maybe if I go at night, there won't be any distractions. It'll be going after hours. And we can really dig in. We can really get into the weeds of the things I want to talk about. Now, regardless of why Nicodemus came at night... Understand that this was an extremely significant encounter. Because again, this was a prominent leader of the Jews, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, coming to Jesus, talking to a carpenter's son from lowly Galilee. That's significant. Because to the casual observer, it would be the Galilean, the carpenter's son, going to the Pharisee. But it wasn't like that in the case of Nicodemus. And so for Nicodemus to approach Jesus, it meant that he had to admit that he did not know everything. There was a level of humility that had to be there on the part of Nicodemus to simply approach Jesus in the first place. Understand that coming to Jesus, learning about salvation, means that we have to display a level of humility. We have to admit that maybe we don't know it all. We have to admit that Jesus is the one who has the answers. We have to be willing to lower ourselves in order to listen and to accept the words of Jesus Christ. And it appears that that is what Nicodemus is doing here. And so he comes to Jesus and he recognized that he was from God. 
Again, there's that glimmer of faith again. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus here is believing that Jesus was a teacher endowed with the power of God. He saw the signs for himself, and he believed that there was something supernatural about them. But understand that the recognition that Jesus' signs are real and the recognition that they are from God is not enough to save. And I believe we have an example of that just a little bit earlier at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. And when Jesus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, I believe that Nicodemus is associating with him, himself with these people at the end of chapter 2. There in verse 23 of John chapter 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, that being Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man." And so these people that are being discussed here at the end of chapter 2 saw Jesus perform miracles, and they believed what they saw. But did you notice that Jesus did not entrust himself to them? Because even though they saw, what, they saw the signs, they believed the signs, they saw that they were from God, Jesus wasn't going to entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew that these people were going to be the same type of people or possibly the exact same people who would have Jesus turned over to the authorities to be crucified. They saw, but it wasn't a faith that was going to propel them to genuine discipleship. And here in just a few verses, Jesus is going to explain that there's something more than just seeing and believing that's needed. And that is, they have to be born again. Now, I'll just go on and say right now at this point in the text, even though it's not revealed to us explicitly, it does appear that Nicodemus listens to the words that we're about to hear from Jesus, and it does appear that he does become a genuine disciple. And the reason that we say that is because John gives us two pieces of evidence later on in his book. In John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, we see that Nicodemus actually steps in and defends Jesus among some of the other Pharisees and some of the other officials of the Jews. Now, the only reason that Nicodemus would be motivated to stick his neck out like that is if he had a genuine vested interest in Jesus, if he truly cared about Jesus. Otherwise, Nicodemus would just be causing trouble for himself. But even more credible as to why we believe Nicodemus became a follower is because of what is revealed in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 40. Jesus had been crucified, and we see Nicodemus going with Joseph of Arimathea with pounds and pounds of embalming spices and aloes to bury and wrap the body of Christ. If Nicodemus wanted nothing to do with Jesus, he would, want to, would have wanted nothing to do with his body. But yet we see Nicodemus taking care to make sure that Jesus is properly wrapped and put in the tomb. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. 
He acknowledges that he is a teacher from God, and Jesus then responds in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now for us, a statement like this doesn't sound that crazy. Because all of us are used to terms like born again or rebirth or regeneration or new creation. And we're all familiar with the fact that those describe what it means to become a Christian. We recognize the fact that that's what it takes to inherit eternal life. And what we mean by that is there has to be a true, genuine transformation of heart. And that transformation is a result of the truth about Christ the truth that he is the son of God, the truth that he came to this earth, that his sacrifice paid the price for our sins, and because of that sacrifice, we can be reconciled back to God. And that truth permeates, it pricks our hearts to the point that we are moved to obedience. And we show that obedience through repentance of our sins, through confession that he is the Christ, and through baptism in his death. And it's from that point on that our hearts are transformed and they continue to be transformed as we live life in this new body. Understand that those things, those are the things that encompass being born again. It's being convicted by the truth. It's allowing the truth to take root in your heart and responding in obedience. But to a man like Nicodemus, that concept of being born again was extremely bizarre to him. And it completely blindsided him. Because to Nicodemus, his view of righteousness, his view of belonging to the kingdom of God had to do with law keeping. It had to do with sacrifices. It had to do with rituals. I mean, he probably already held the view that he was part of the kingdom simply based on his credentials. He was a devout Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He thought, hey, I'm as religious as they come. Of course I'm a member of the kingdom. And if that isn't good enough, guess what? I'm a Jew. I'm the son of Abraham. Just solely based on my lineage, I'm in the kingdom of God. But now all of a sudden, Jesus is looking at him face to face and saying, listen, those things don't matter. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And guys, that's an important lesson for us. Because it does not matter who we are. We could be a direct descendant of the Apostle Paul. We could be the great, great, great grandchild of Alexander Campbell. Our parents could be two of the most devout Christians that have ever walked the face of the planet. We could have more biblical knowledge than anybody in this room combined. We could have every theological degree that there is to obtain. But none of that matters if we're not born again. And so Nicodemus hears this. And he thinks, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? And so in verse 4, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born When he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, of course, Nicodemus is probably being pretty sarcastic here. He's a pretty intelligent man, and he knows that what he just said isn't physically possible. 
But what this statement does do is it clearly shows us that Nicodemus is missing the spiritual application of what Jesus is trying to say. And if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, that wouldn't be the first time it happened, was it? Jesus would speak in parables quite a bit, and people would what? They'd miss the spiritual application. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. All of a sudden, people are thinking cannibalism. They completely missed the spiritual application. Here, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he'd have to be born again. But Nicodemus is missing the spiritual application. And so Jesus goes on and he elaborates in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so again, Jesus is saying here that being born naturally is not what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's especially important for a person like Nicodemus to understand. Because his whole idea of being in the kingdom was based so heavily on his fleshly lineage. But Jesus says, listen, the things that are born of the flesh, they're just that. They're flesh. It doesn't matter who you descend from. And it doesn't matter what you do to the flesh. You know, Nicodemus is probably thinking, listen, not only am I a Jew, not only did I descend from Abraham, but I consume all the foods that the law says that I can feed my flesh. I keep my flesh pure and ceremonially clean. I've even been circumcised in the flesh according to the law. But Jesus says, nope. That's not what it's all about. It's a spiritual transformation. And Paul expounds on this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. When he says, beginning in verse 11, In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see that spiritual aspect. He says, By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Yes, there was a physical circumcision that was commanded by the Mosaic law. But Paul and Jesus are saying that being born of the Spirit means a circumcision of the heart. It is the circumcision of Christ. It is the, the symbolic cutting away of the sins of the flesh that taint and harden the heart. Circumcision of the heart is accomplished when we are buried in Christ in faith in the waters of baptism. That is the powerful spiritual working of God in our lives. Verse 13 says that we were dead in our sins, but we have been forgiven and made alive in Christ. There's a transformation. There's a rebirth. We are born again. And I just imagine that as Nicodemus is hearing Jesus talk about this idea of being reborn, his eyes were as wide as saucers. 
Because in verse 7, Jesus looks at him and says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus goes on and he makes a very interesting statement in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and if you try and, and look at commentators and hear what they have to say, there's about a thousand different explanations as to exactly what they think this verse means. But I really think that the explanation is a lot more simple than humans try to make it. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing the wind to those who have been born again by the Spirit. It's not really that complicated. And let me see if I can explain. You know, we don't see the wind, do we? We don't see when it comes, but we can hear it and we can see the effects of it. For example, if you rake up a pile of leaves and a big gust of wind comes, you don't see the incoming wind, but you see the effects that it has on the leaves as all of those leaves are scattered about on your yard again. Or maybe there's some straight line winds that come in. You don't see them barreling through, but you see the effects of them as they rip off shingles and, and break branches off of trees. In the exact same way, we don't physically see the Holy Spirit moving, but we see his effects in the lives of those who have been born of the Spirit. If you're familiar with Galatians chapter 5, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And we understand that those who are affected, who, who, are, who live by the Spirit, they grow fruit, don't they? That's the Spirit's effect in their life. And the Spirit affects all of us as we read the Word of God. He, he talks to us. He, he moves through the Word. And when we give ourselves to the Word, then there's an effect. There is fruit that is grown. We don't see the Spirit, but we see the effects of the Spirit. And that is what Jesus is saying here in verse 8. And by this point, Nicodemus is floored. And so he says in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus basically says, listen, Nicodemus, you of all people should not be floored by this concept. In verse 10, Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Listen, Nicodemus, you claim to be a well-educated, knowledgeable teacher of the law. And yet you ask, how can these things be? He's saying, listen, Nicodemus, this concept of a new birth, this isn't as foreign as you're making it out to be. In fact, as a student of the scriptures, you should be making the connection between what I'm telling you and what has been prophesied in the past. As a student of the law and as a student of, of the old scripture, Nicodemus would have been aware of the prophecies of Ezekiel. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 36, I ask you to turn over there. 
In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, we see an Old Testament prophecy of a transformation, of a rebirth, if you will. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25, God is talking about what he's going to do to the house of Israel. And I want you to see if you can hear some of the connections between this prophecy and what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. In verse 25 of Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules." And if you can hear from that prophecy this idea of a transformation, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a cleansing by water. There's going to be a transformation by the Spirit. This imagery lines up with what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3, that a person is going to have to be born of both water and the Spirit, being born again, receiving new life. And then in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, There's that great imagery of those dry, dead bones laying on the ground, but God is going to give them new life. He says in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37 that I will put my spirit within you. Those bones will be reborn. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Again, this spiritual transformation that's going to take place in the heart. And so Jesus in John chapter 3 is simply reemphasizing the themes that have been said all along. If we want to see the kingdom of God, a transformation, a cleansing of the heart, a rebirth must take place. And then he goes on and he makes a shocking comparison between himself and the bronze serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. In verse 13 of John chapter 3, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when Jesus said this, Nicodemus was well aware of what he was referencing. Nicodemus was an expert in the law. He was an expert uh, in the words that Moses wrote. But even though Jesus brings this up, and even though Nicodemus recognizes the reference, I am positive that Nicodemus was confused as to why Jesus would relate himself to the serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. And on the surface, we too may be confused as to why Jesus is comparing himself to this particular event. But to help bring this home, to help us understand what's what's being said here, let's read the event that, that Jesus is referencing in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 4. This is during the Israelites' 40 years wandering in the wilderness. In verse 4 of Numbers chapter 21, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea, 
to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And they're talking about the manna that God was giving them. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. And so in this account in Numbers, the Israelites are once again complaining. They're once again saying, listen, we're going to die. Why did you bring us out here? We don't have any food. We don't have any water. And the food that we do have, we despise it. What's so amazing about this is, once again, God was with them. God was by their side, but they were rejecting him. They were ignoring him, and that attitude is a transgression against God. And so God punishes the people by sending these venomous snakes among them. And the snakes would go throughout the people, and they would bite the people, and when they were bitten, they would die. And as this chaotic event is unfolding, the people realize that they have sinned against God. And they decide, listen, we need to repent. Because they wanted to be released and cured from that stinging bite of death that they were receiving. And so God tells Moses to put a serpent on a pole. And anyone who has been bitten can look at that serpent that's on that pole And they can be remedied from that curse of death. And so Moses made a serpent out of bronze, and it says that he set it on a pole. The idea could be that he impaled it on a pole. And sure enough, when those people who had been bitten sought that snake out, and they looked at that snake, they truly were healed. They lived. And I want you to imagine this. Because at this time, there may have been two, possibly three million Israelites. And these snakes are going through the people, and they're getting bitten by these venomous snakes. And simply put, they are on the fast track to death. And they know that there is only one remedy that will save them. And that one remedy is that snake that is hanging on that pole. And if you can imagine the amount of space that two to three million people would have taken up, you can can understand that it would take an effort to seek out that pole, to work your way towards that pole, and to look upon that snake. And then on top of that, you would have to have the belief, you would have to have the faith that that snake was going to do something to begin with, or else you wouldn't even go to it. Understand that this event that's taking place in Numbers chapter 21 the snake on the pole. This is the root of the gospel message. This is the root of how people are born again. Again, many people would never dare 
compared Jesus to a serpent. When we think of a serpent, we think of evil, we think of wickedness, we think of the devil himself. But Jesus in John chapter 3 told Nicodemus, I am like the serpent. And guys, we are like the Israelites. Because we have turned our backs on God. We have sinned against God. And because of that, we were bitten with the venom of sin and we have been destined to die. But just like God did something for the Israelites, God has done something for us. He gave us an opportunity to be healed by impaling his son on a cross and lifting him up for everyone to see. And if we want to be healed from our sins, we can make an effort like the Israelites did to seek out and to look upon the cross. And we can see Jesus hanging there. And when we do that, we see the brutal reality, we see the ugliness, we see the horrific nature of our sin and the death that it brings. Understand that looking at Jesus, understanding his sacrifice, is at the heart of being born again. It's this realization, it's this understanding of what his death has done that propels us to obedience. It's what causes us to want to repent of our sins that put him on the cross. It's, what, it's that wanting to be obedient to the point that we confess our sins, that he is the son of God, that he came for the purpose of bearing our sins and bearing our punishment. And in obedience we too can be buried and resurrected with him in baptism. And when we decide to do those things, we will be spiritually reborn. We will be a new creature who is ready to see and to be a part of the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message to Nicodemus. And that is Jesus' message to us. This afternoon, are you ready to be a part of the kingdom? Are you ready to be in the presence of the king? If you are, then you are ready to be reborn. And you can be reborn this very afternoon by understanding the horrific nature of your sin that it is a transgression against a perfect and a holy God. And when you understand that your sin is a transgression against perfection, against the creator of this world, then you can have the willingness to repent of those sins. You can confess that you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came down from heaven, that he bore your sins on the cross, bore your punishment so that you can have a home in heaven. And if you believe that, you can then be buried with Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. If there's absolutely anything that we can do for you this afternoon, please come forward as together we stand and as we sing.